It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 Three one three eight one four five six seven, or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And welcome into the December twenty fourth, two thousand and nine edition of the Virtual Bible Study. We're glad you're a part of it tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father Greg Gwynn is with me tonight. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you. Uh, it's a special night for a lot of people, a lot of family activities going on tonight, I'm sure. Uh, so some of our regular listeners may be occupied with other things tonight, but we're going to be doing our regular Thursday night thing, the virtual Bible study. And glad to be with you tonight. Likely many people will be listening to this in the podcast edition. And so we might want to take a minute to talk about uh, podcast listeners and how much we do appreciate uh, them listening to the program. Exactly. Even though they don't listen live, we're glad that they listen in the podcast. Absolutely right. I've talked to a lot of people who uh, regularly get the archive version via podcast or, or if they go to our website and directly download the archive. A lot of people have told me they listen to it when they're on their daily commute to work uh, and so forth. So it, it's a good way to multiply our efforts here, and we appreciate everybody who's interested in what we're talking about on the virtual Bible study. And while you cannot participate live if you listen to the podcast, you can still be a part of the program. You can contact us anytime with questions or comments about something you hear on the virtual Bible study or suggestions about things you'd like to have discussed in upcoming editions of the program. That's right. Our email address is always open, questions at collegeview.com. We're glad to hear from you at any time. And in fact, Jacob, that's sort of what we're going to do on our program tonight. That's right. We want to listen or talk about some questions that our listeners have submitted. You've got a pile of them here and lots of things to discuss, and I think we can get through all of them, but we'll have lots to cover tonight. Yeah. Uh, what I usually do with these sort of things is that uh, we sort of keep a, a, a log going of the different things that people have sent in to us and compile those messages. And, and periodically we have a, a, a version of the virtual Bible study like we're going to do tonight where we just go to those questions and uh, – Try to answer them. They're not necessarily related. A couple of them are related to one another, but not all of them are related. But uh, they're all on Bible subjects, so we'll talk about them tonight. Remember our contact info, Jacob. That's right. We would like to hear from you. If you're out there, you know, the audience is small tonight. But if, <clears throat> if you're out there, we would like to hear from you at 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. Remember that uh, we send out, typically we send out an update on Thursdays to the people who want to hear about our topic for that night and be advised of what we're going to be talking about. You can get on our update list by sending us an email to questions at collegeview.com and put in the subject line, add me to the list. I've also talked to some people, Jacob, who are not, who were getting our updates and now they're not. And what I think is probably happening to some folks is that Maybe the spam filter on their email service is, is shuffling us off into the into the spam folder. So check on that. You may find some messages from us there. If they are, I think you can probably mark us as not spam and overcome that problem. But if you used to get the, the updates and you're not anymore, it may be because of that. I think your personal email would probably mark your update emails as spam, uh, even though it came from you. Uh, yeah. Some of the filters have changed recently. And yeah. So. Maybe a problem with that. So kind of check your spam filter or spam folder and see if we're in there, if, you, if you've if you been missing our updates. All right. We want to hear from you at 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. Uh, the audience is growing as we speak. Uh, there are some listeners uh, available to talk to you in the chat room tonight if you'd like to join in with other listeners in the chat room. Follow the instructions on your screen if you're watching us from Ustream.tv tonight. We're glad that you're out there. We look forward to hearing from you on the program tonight. Well, let's get to our first question tonight, Jacob. This comes from a listener in Dallas, Georgia, who writes, Paul and Timothy were heading off in ministry, and Paul circumcised Timothy, Acts 14, etc. The Bible says his mother was a Jew and a Christian, and his father was a Greek. And it says that's why Paul circumcised him, because his father was a Greek. I don't understand this. The apostles had just had a summit to determine if it was necessary for Gentile converts to be circumcised, and they came up with only three things. No taking in of blood, no eating food offered to idols, and to stay away from fornication. 
Why would Timothy need to be circumcised? Thanks much. Looking forward to your answer from Dallas, Georgia. Appreciate that question from Dallas, Georgia. And she is correct that in Acts chapter 15, Paul had gone to Jerusalem for the express purpose of having a discussion about those who were claiming that Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And and it wasn't. I, I always have to comment about Acts 15. That was not like a church conference where they took a vote and decided an issue. The, the issue was already known. They really just uh, met together for the purpose of letting it be known that they weren't going to tolerate false teaching on this matter of circumcision for Gentile Christians. Uh, There were many Jewish converts who apparently were insisting that the Gentiles who were coming into the church be circumcised, and that was never the case. The truth on that was known before they ever met in Jerusalem. They didn't decide that matter there. But they, they, the, the meeting accomplished the idea of putting that to rest or stopping those false teachers from spreading that doctrine. And Paul had gone there on a mission to take care of this problem and, yeah. and to, to nip it in the bud. And then in chapter 16, which is the account that is referenced with by our emailer, is where Paul has Timothy circumcised. Now, certainly Paul had a better memory uh, than that, than to go from Acts chapter 15 into the next chapter, verse 16, and forget yeah. that, uh, that people didn't have to be circumcised. Yeah. Uh, Timothy... It says in Acts chapter 16, beginning verse 1, Then came Paul to to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, what's kind of interesting, a little bit of background on that. I think it says that Timothy was already a disciple when Paul came there. Paul had been to Derby and Lystra on his first missionary journey. In fact, it was at Lystra, which we believe is the home city of Timothy, where he was stoned and left for dead. And uh, kind of an inter- we talked about this recently in a Bible study. Kind of interestingly, um, after they uh, stone Paul left him for dead Acts 14 verse 19 it says as the disciples verse 20 stood round about him he rose up and came into the city and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. it's kind of interesting that there is the possibility I couldn't prove it but I think there's a, a unique possibility that Timothy might have as a young man might have been among those disciples who saw Paul stoned and then uh, probably miraculously come back rise up and and be well uh, i don't think there's any way that the think the things that happened there in that passage could have happened naturally i think it was a, a miraculous healing and and so there's i think a unique possibility that timothy was among those who saw that in the case of paul being stoned whatever the case when paul came back to lystra on his second missionary journey timothy was already a disciple paul paul wanted him to go forth with them on their missionary work and he circumcised him now from the way this question is worded, I get the idea that maybe our our listener thinks that the text reads he was circumcised because his father was a Greek. Uh, I think that, that he was circumcised because it was known that his mother was a Jew and his father was a Greek. But his, his uh, partial heritage from among the Jews, I think Paul saw that this could potentially be a hindrance in Timothy being able to effectively preach the gospel because the Jews would have hounded him everywhere he went. He wouldn't have been a circumcised male as they would have expected a Jew to be right. because his father was a Greek. Yeah, he he basically, I think the statement, everybody knew his father was a Greek, is basically a statement saying everybody knows that he was of mixed heritage, Gentile and Jew. And, and the Jews, wherever they went, would have been at Timothy constantly. And this would have just been a point of friction that would have, caused him to not be an effective worker in the kingdom and so i think paul made a a a judgment call here i don't think he's doing it because he believed it was religiously necessary that timothy had to be circumcised in order to be saved i think he was doing it in order to make it so that timothy would be most beneficial to the work of the kingdom this is in line with what paul said in first corinthians chapter 9 verse 20 under the Jews I became a Jew that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law as under the law that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law as without law, being not without law to God but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. 
to the weak I became as weak that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And so Paul Paul's emphasis was on spreading the gospel. And he didn't want to do anything that would be a hindrance to that. He tried to become all things to all men. That doesn't mean that he would become sinful, engaged in sinful activities to reach sinners. But in other words, he's he, he he's trying to, to present himself, and, and he would have had the same idea about Timothy, in such a fashion that he could reach as many people as possible. When Paul says he came as a Jew, he's not saying he began to bind the Old Testament law upon himself. But he removed as many barriers as he could to uh, having contact with those who are Jewish so he might convert them to Christ. So I, I think you're exactly right, and I think that's why he had Timothy circumcised. Now, there's another, there's another tie-in to this story. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes about when he went up to Jerusalem on this question of circumcision. In Galatians 2, Paul writes about what happened in Acts 15, and it says uh, in, in Galatians 2, verse 2, I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, they might bring us into bondage to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So in the case of Titus, who was a young man who was completely Gentile, he had no, he had no element of Jewish heritage. He was, he, was a, he was fully a Gentile. And when those Judaizing teachers in Jerusalem, and remember, as you said, this was just before the episode with Timothy. In the case of Titus, there was no reason, no call, no benefit, to having him circumcised, and Paul would not agree, not for a moment, when the Jews said that Titus needed to be circumcised. And so putting that all together, I think we see that Paul definitely wouldn't allow this circumcision on Gentiles to be bound. He knew better, and he wouldn't allow it. But in the case of Timothy, because he was half Jewish and his father was a Greek, because of that mixed heritage, Paul saw a benefit to having Timothy circumcised, but I think it was not because of religious duty or necessity, but because of a, 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 a judgment as to what would be most prudent to the work. We might do the same thing today. If I was going to go to uh, the Middle East to do some preaching and my wife was going with me, uh, I would have my wife dress in the uh, attire of those in the Middle East, not because I think she has to have her head fully covered in order or wear to wear a burqa or something yeah, like right. that. But because I wouldn't want her to be a distraction uh, to our, our work there in the Middle East. Exactly right. I think that's a good example. All right. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. We're having more listeners that are showing up as we speak. So we're glad that you're out there. And uh, if you have a question you'd like discussed on the virtual Bible study tonight, we're talking about any Bible question that you might have. The forum is open tonight for you. And we'll be glad to take any question you might have. We're not promising an answer, but we'll be glad to entertain any question that you might have. So give us a call at 877-381-4567 or email questions at collegeview.com. It's virtual Bible study smorgasbord tonight. That's right. Anything goes. We're dealing with buffet style. Buffet random questions. So give us a call. Send us an email. All right. So we have time for a break, I guess, right now. And then when we get back on the other side of the break, uh, we'll talk about uh, going forward at the end of services. Yeah. Uh, what about that? Uh, that's something that we need to be doing. Let us know your thoughts. Any question or comment is fair game tonight. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study will continue right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. Hello. Hey, Matt. No, I don't have any plans for Friday night. What are you doing? Oh, I won't be able to go with you to watch that movie. Because, Matt, the movie is rated R. Hey, why don't you just come over and hang out at my house Friday night? Great. I'll see you there. Being pleasing to God means that you may have to be different than the crowd. But don't be afraid to stand up for what's right. It just might find it is easier than what you expect. A message brought to you by College View Church of Christ. Hi, I'm Jack Coleman, a member of the College View Church of Christ, with a suggestion for you and your family. Why not turn off the TV on Thursday nights and gather the family around the computer for an hour of in-depth Bible study? 
The virtual Bible study always involves subjects of importance and interest to serious Bible students. So, why not join this Internet Bible study group every Thursday night? Use your Internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. Welcome back into the virtual Bible study tonight. Thank you again for being a part of it. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Any Bible question or comment is fair game tonight. If you've got something you've been studying you'd like to have discussed in this forum, let us know. Or if you've heard someone ask you a question uh, that you maybe wondered about the answer, let us know. We'll be glad to kick the question around and put it out to all of our listeners tonight, uh, for all those that are online. Our uh, chat room is quiet, the Jacob. The chat room is quiet right now. But if, you got, if you're in the chat room and got something you want to say, start a conversation in there. Maybe some of the other listeners will get involved there, too. All right. I think we have Dean in Louisiana in the chat room tonight. I think I should know the other uh, listener in the chat room, but I'm not sure, so I won't say. Okay. But uh, they're a family of six, and that gives me some clues, but I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's go to a question sent to us by Scott in Ohio. Scott says, I have heard it said that at some point or another, all of us as Christians should be on the front pew. I've also heard Christians argue that when they responded to the Lord's invitation, that was the only time they needed to go forward. Of course, they were, they are not perfect. Of course, they are not perfect, but they can go to God at any time in prayer and do not need to go forward. So his question is, is it scriptural for a Christian to go forward and asking for prayers, confessing sin, and so forth, uh, after their original response to the gospel call? And then he, he, he adds a little bit more to that in a follow-up email. He said, if there is no book, chapter, and verse to support this tradition, is it wrong or sinful? If there is no book, chapter, or verse, or direct command, is the principle taught in the New Testament that would support the need for going forward and asking for prayers uh, of the congregation? Personally, I see a great benefit uh, in going forward and requesting the prayers and support of my brothers and sisters in Christ. It is an opportunity that we have abandoned and relegated to being only for those responding to the gospel call. Please share the scriptures and your views on this. All right, so uh, his question basically is, um, what about going forward? Not, uh, well, that's that's sort of terminology we've coined, going forward. What about responding to the invitation as it's extended at the end of a sermon? You know, at the end of a sermon, we typically will conclude the thoughts of the sermon by by suggesting a need for people to make their life right with God. That need may be met by people obeying the plan of salvation and being baptized into christ or it may be that someone who's already done that but has fallen into sin needs to seek the prayers of the congregation they 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 need to confess the sins that they have committed and and the congregation pray in behalf of those people uh that they be restored to a right standing with god what he's he's not talking about the first response of someone who becomes a christian he understands that you know but but I would even I would even probably uh, qualify that. I don't think a person has to quote go forward in order to be baptized into Christ. There have been many instances in which people here uh, have have called it different days, different times of day, uh, different days of the week, and different times of day uh, in order to to be baptized into Christ. You don't have to wait for an assembly, and you don't have to go wait for the invitation. A song go forward at the end of a of an assembly in order to be baptized into Christ. Some do. Actually, I'm finding that fewer and fewer wait for that opportunity. Most of them do it at some other time. But following the example of the Philippian jailer, yeah, uh, when they're convicted, uh, of wanting to be baptized then. So he's not asking though about going forward to be baptized. He's asking about the person who might go forward to ask for prayers. All right, I think we're dealing with an area of an expediency. In uh, James chapter 5, verse 16, the instruction is to confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And so uh, the instruction is to confess our faults. Uh, the uh, the procedure that many congregations go through in which uh, the ch- opportunity is given at the close of services for that to take place is an area of expediency where we accomplish the instruction that we've been or fulfill the instruction we've been given there in James chapter 5. I think you're right. I think it's a fair statement to say that our confession of wrongs should be as widely known as the the wrong or the sin is itself. And, and I would argue that from Matthew chapter, um, oh, let's see, maybe Matthew chapter 5 
Verse 23, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, then come and offer thy gift. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So I've got to go. If I've wronged someone, then I've got to go. I've got to let them know that I've that I've changed my heart about that. I've, I've got to confess my wrong to them and make it right. Now, Jacob, if I only wronged you, and you're the only one who even knows about it, then I don't need to go before a whole crowd of people in order to make that right. I can go to you, and I can I can confess my wrong to you, and I can ask for your forgiveness, and we can pray together, and it'd be it'd be past history. Nobody else has to even know about it. But if I've done something that effectively wrongs a huge number of people, then, as you said, it's an expedient way to let my change of heart be known to those people to do it in an assembly where I go forward. And therefore, everybody who needs to know can know that I have changed from that. Uh, an example that I've used, let's let's say that I go out uh, some night and, and get drunk and crash my car. Uh, and the next morning on the front page of the newspaper, you know, there's my picture and 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 a, a very detailed description of all the mess that I've made the night before in my drunkenness. Well, I've sinned. And not only have I sinned against God, but I've sinned against all my brethren. And and I, I've I've defamed the reputation of the of the congregation. And therefore, everybody needs to know if I'm going to make this right, I've got to get I've got to get the information to everybody that I've hurt that I, I know I'm wrong and I'm seeking forgiveness. And so an expedient way, as you use the word expedient, expedient way to do that would be to go forward at, 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 in, in an assembly and say, brethren, I've, I've sinned. Pray for me. Now, that's one way to do it. Another way to do it, you may get on the phone and call every, every I can member. I call every time. single one. But, or you can go to their homes and, and talk to them face to face. But that, I think there's a downside to that potentially. Uh, it's not as fast. It's not as effective. I may miss somebody. Plus, if I do this publicly and then six months later somebody in the community throws it up to one of the members of the church, oh, yeah, well, you, you, we know what that guy did. and We know he's a member of your congregation. They can say, listen, he made that right. He made a public confession and acknowledged his wrong. So I think there's an, a benefit to it. So certainly it's right to confess. In fact, we're instructed to confess our sins, as you read there in James 5:16. I believe that it's a biblical principle that the confession of our sin needs to be as widely known as the sin itself is, and therefore this methodology that we use is is a, as you said, an effective expedience. Now, the other thing that I think is mentioned in our questioner's email is. Sometimes I just need to ask my brothers to pray for me. And, Absolutely. And so, uh, you know, we've put sort of this stigma on the idea of, of going forward. And we made it such a big traumatic experience that we've talked a lot of people out of doing it. And that, and for that reason, we don't, as often as we should, simply ask our brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for us when we're dealing with issues in our life. I've been a part of congregation before where it was a very common thing for people to go forward. I mean, it happened on a, a regular basis, multiple times in a month. Someone would go forward, and it was about, now I'm having difficulty with a search situation at work, or I'm having difficulty with dealing with certain family members. I need help. Would you pray for me? Would you please be there to help me? And I think that certainly is, uh, is a scriptural thing and something that needs to be employed more often. Okay, I'm looking in the chat room, Jacob. I think we've got some chatting going on there finally. And I think they're talking about people being baptized, not waiting for the services or the assembly times in order to be baptized. I think they're agreeing with us on on that. All right. All right. So two questions down. We've got a few more to go. We're open to your questions. Send us an email or get on the phone and call us, and we'll be glad to talk with you. That's right. Any any question is fair game tonight, as we have a reduced audience on the, uh, the virtual Bible study, but you still have a good number here tonight, and so... Uh, we'd like to hear from you. Any question or comment is fair game. If you don't feel like typing, the telephone is open tonight. Give us a call. We'd be glad to hear from you on the phone. Jay, we've got an email from Jonathan in Cookville, Tennessee, who says he's looking for some assistance, wanted to see if we could help. He says, I've been having a difficult time with some individuals. They are members of the church concerning whether or not we have flexibility when it comes to direct commands in the New Testament. I've basically told these individuals that I can't imagine where they get the idea that we have flexibility when the Bible is so clear about something. 
The command we have been discussing is the qualifications that a widow must meet in order to be helped by the church, 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 12. My stance has been that if you can be flexible on one command, then you can be flexible on all commands, such as the command for baptism. They don't think there is flexibility on that. They don't think there is flexibility. Their justification that some direct commands in the Bible are flexible is based upon the story in Mark 2, 23 through 28, where Jesus and his disciples plucked heads of grain on the Sabbath. They say that Jesus was still under the old law at the time, but he did something that was not lawful. Also, Jesus gave examples of other things that happened in the Old Testament that were unlawful, but presented in such a way that Jesus approved of those actions. Since we don't know that Jesus, since we know rather, since we know that Jesus had no sin, we must conclude that there was some flexibility on the command of the Sabbath, even though the rules for it seem to be plainly stated in the scriptures. This shows we have flexibility today. In other words, he's stating their argument. He says, don't know how to answer this. Do you have suggestions? Uh, the... Uh, I think basically, Jacob, what's being suggested there is, and and some brethren are 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 keen to promote the idea of situation ethics. That sometimes we just have to be flexible, even if even in regards to direct commands, sometimes we got to bend the rules a little bit. A lot of times we hear about lying. It's okay to lie if it, if if it's done to protect someone's feelings or to do something like that. It's okay to bend the rules or break the rules. But first, before we get into the question, we need to establish that Jesus didn't sin here. There yeah. was no sin. Jesus did no sin, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. But we also know that Jesus didn't bend the rules because if he bent the rules, he would be breaking the law and therefore would be sin. First uh, John chapter 3, verse 4, whosoever committed sin transgresses also the law, for sin is a transgression of the law. So Jesus didn't violate the law here. What Jesus did had to be within the realm of the Old Testament law. Yeah, uh, Jonathan in his email mentions Mark 2 the account in Mark 2, a parallel account is in Matthew 12, and I actually like the Matthew 12. I think it's a little more uh, complete, uh, detailed information on this. And so I, w- I want to go to that and read it, and we may not get to comment before the break, but let me read it before the break. We'll go to the break, Jacob, and we'll comment when we get back. Uh, it says in Matthew 12, beginning verse 1, At that time Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungered and began to pluck their ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said to them, Have you not read that? Uh, have you not read what David did when he was hungered, and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them that were with him, but only for the priest. Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say to you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if he had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. And when he departed thence, he went into their synagogue. So that's the text in Matthew 12, beginning verse 1. And it looks like we're up to a break time, Jacob. Let's let's take the break. When we come back, and if you've got some thoughts about that in the chat room or by email, let us know what you think. Did Jesus employ situation ethics in that situation? In other words, This is wrong, but these are unique circumstances, and therefore it's okay. It would normally be wrong. And and, and did he he justify David when David ate the showbread because that was unique or extreme circumstances? Let's talk about that when we get back from the break. All right. Uh, We would like to hear from you during the break. Uh, Join in on the discussion over the phone or over email tonight, or as was mentioned, you can join in on the chat room tonight. We're glad that there are some listeners there who are chatting. You can join in with them if you'll go into the chat room tonight. We're going to take a break and get this week's bullet point, and we'll continue the discussion right after this. Have you checked out all of the resources on collegeview.com lately? Check it out now while you listen to these important messages. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. There are two very different ways to view service in the kingdom of God. They reflect two totally opposite understandings of what really constitutes working for the Lord. The first view holds that a person's effectiveness and growth potential is directly related to the number of things he does in the public assemblies. 
Those who think this way are disappointed if there are limited opportunities to lead singing, word prayers, make announcements, wait at the Lord's table, and so forth. Frequently, they will voice concern that they are not being used or that they're not growing if they don't have numerous chances each month to perform these functions. They seem to like the limelight and feel unproductive if they can't be in front of the crowd. Such folks are typically unhappy in a larger congregation because a larger group naturally limits the frequency of such public activities. Others have a different outlook on these things. Yes, they are more than willing to do what they can in the worship services. Do you need a song leader or someone to fill in when the preacher is gone? Need a teacher for the junior high or high school class? You need only ask. They are ready. But these folks feel that such opportunities are really only the icing on the cake. They understand that real service is something that springs from a heart that is fully and deeply dedicated to God. If there is something of a public nature that needs to be done, they'll gladly do it. But they're not sitting back waiting for such opportunities and moaning if they don't come their way. Instead, they're making their own opportunities by teaching their own families, neighbors, and co-workers. They see to the needs of the sick and downtrodden. They work. They're doing it regardless of whether or not there is someone standing by to observe them. It's this second view that is clearly taught by our Lord in passages like Matthew 23:11 and Luke 22:26. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hi, I'm Anthony Petrochko, a member of the College View Church of Christ. Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study. We want to remind you that our website, www.collegeview.com or www.thevirtualbiblestudy.com, has lots of valuable study tools available for your use. First, you can find archives of all our past programs there. We've covered a wide variety of topics, including doctrinal issues, moral and ethical questions, and many things related to living daily as a Christian. And while we don't have a search engine option on our website, remember that you can hit Control F and type in a keyword. You'll then see that keyword highlighted on the page. For instance, if you hit Control F and typed in the word worship, you'd find these past programs that we've conducted. Does it matter how we worship? What about contemporary worship and hand clapping? Our worship, pleasing to God or pleasing to man, and instrumental music in worship. That's just an example, but you get the idea as to how the webpage can be used to help in your study of various subjects. Also remember that we have copies of our church bulletin on the website, and these bulletins include articles on hundreds of topics. You'll also find some recorded sermons, some Bible tracts, as well as information about the College View Church. So be sure to check out the valuable resources on our website. Again, the address is collegeview.com or thevirtualbiblestudy.com. And thanks again for listening to the Virtual Bible Study. Be sure to tell others. We're waiting to hear from you. Call in right now and join in on the Virtual Bible Study. Now, back to the program. And welcome back into the Virtual Bible Study. We're glad you're a part of it tonight. We want you to join in on the discussion. Any Bible question or comment is fair game. We've got another question during the break that we'll have to throw into the mix as well. So we'd like to hear from you. Join in on the discussion over the phone, over email, or in the chat room tonight. All right, let's get back to this Matthew 12 because Jonathan is asking the question, can that passage be used to say it's okay to bend the rules? We know what the rules are. Rules are rules, but sometimes you got to bend the rules. And Jesus even bent the rules and commended David for bending the rules, and that's therefore justification for us. I think that is completely, absolutely wrong. So in Matthew 12, I think the first thing I like to point out is that when Jesus' disciples began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat them in the, uh, as, they, as they passed through the fields of corn, that in itself was not sinful. It was not stealing. That was an allowed practice under the Old Testament law. And I've got written in the margin there at Matthew 12, Deuteronomy 23, 25, which says that you, if you were passing through, you could, you could gather grain just to eat. But you couldn't harvest the man's crops. You couldn't take it. You couldn't begin harvesting and hauling him off. But you could take enough to eat as you passed through, and that. And so Deuteronomy twenty three twenty five proves that that wasn't wrong. But that's not the point that is usually being made. The point that's typically made from this text is what Jesus said about David. Remember, David was fleeing from King Saul. King Saul was trying to kill him, and so he came to where the tabernacle was at the time and asked for food. There wasn't any. And the priest gave him the showbread, him and and the men who were with him, the showbread to eat. But the showbread was to be eaten only by priests. The law is very specific about that. Uh, And so people say, well, Jesus referenced David eating the showbread to prove that under extreme circumstances, it's okay to break the rules. That's not what he did here at all. 
David, when David did that, he sinned. It was wrong. And Jesus acknowledged that. Skip down to verse 7. Uh, excuse me, not not yet to verse 7, but still there in verse 4. Notice that he Jesus identifies it as not lawful. What David did was not lawful. Now, the, I believe the reason why Jesus was bringing that up was because the Jews adored King David and his memory. He was the national hero of Israel. And so basically Jesus here is saying, if I understand what's being what's going on in this context, he's saying, here's David, and he clearly did what was unlawful to do, and yet you all don't have any problem with David at all. But on the other hand, you want to condemn my disciples because and and they have not done it. Notice he actually calls his disciples in verse 7. He calls them guiltless. So Jesus is pointing out the inconsistency of the Jews here in condemning his disciples who were guiltless while honoring the memory of David who broke the law. And so that's why Jesus brought up David. He, he was doing that to show that these Jews were inconsistent. Basically, these Jews were trying to trying to enforce their human traditions against the disciples and jesus wasn't going to allow that but jesus was not justifying situation ethics in this text and i believe it's a mistake and a mistaken use of the passage to try to accomplish that from the from what's said now what about verse five where he says have you not read the law how that on the sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the sabbath and are blameless because they're saying there are some exceptions to the sabbath i believe right well, no, I don't I mean, think so there, there's things, a, there were some things that were permissible on the Sabbath. Day. Things permissible on the Sabbath. It wasn't. It was never a violation of the Sabbath for the priest to do their daily duties in the, in, in the tabernacle or temple on the Sabbath day. Uh, and so he's I, I, what Jesus also says there in verse eight: "The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day." Jesus is saying, "Don't be talking to me about the Sabbath law. I wrote the Sabbath law." Don't be telling me what your interpretation of is who's guilty of breaking the Sabbath and who's not. I wrote the Sabbath law. I know what the Sabbath law is. What the priests do is not a violation. What David did was a violation. What my disciples did leaves them guiltless, not guilty. Right. And so I think that's the way that Jesus was using that. Jesus, they, Jesus is not saying that the laws are fuzzy or, or they're, they're bendable. We can twist and turn and bend them however we need to in order to justify the situation we're in exactly right all right and so uh now what about uh jonathan's question about uh, then the widows is that uh well, is that I, just a suggestion or some no, some guidelines or some some ideals but uh not necessarily hard and fast rules no they seem to be hard and fast rules i believe that that those qualifications are now i think in first timothy chapter five in the passage that he asked you about in verses nine and ten let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported of for good works, if she have brought up children, if she have lodged stranger, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. Those are very clear qualifications. Now, I, I, my understanding there in verse 9, let not a woman be taken into the number. That that expression denotes a widow who is going to be made the permanent benevolent responsibility of the church. Put on, I think some versions say, added to the role or added to the list. Uh, and so some widows in that circumstance, and when they met those qualifications, could be made the permanent charge of the church. They were responsible then for for her well-being from then on. I believe that others, widows and non-widows, can be helped from the church treasury. If a saint is in need, they can be helped on a case-by-case basis. But it wouldn't be like this case where these widows were made permanently the responsibility of the church. And so I think here he's saying a widow cannot, a widow should not be added to that number or put on that role or list unless she meets these qualifications. All right. I've also heard the same set of the uh, guideline or the uh, qualifications for someone to be an elder or a deacon in First Timothy chapter 3, that those are just suggestions uh, just uh, ideals, but uh, again, not hard and fast rules of what a person must possess in order to be an elder or deacon. So again, 
uh, we need to be careful about saying that the scriptures are not binding in every circumstance. Exactly right. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. Excellent questions so far. If you'd like to send in yours, we'd love to hear from you. Join in on the discussion now. I appreciate everyone who submitted a question so far. Uh, let's back up. Let's back up real quickly, Jacob. Uh, Bill has written in on the question we were dealing with earlier about public confession. Bill is in Bruce, Mississippi, and okay. I had to look that up on the map. That's in north central Mississippi. All right. We're glad to have you with us, Bill. Uh, he asked the question about public confession. Uh, is it Some simply say, I have sinned. It, it, oh, he says, is simply saying... I have sinned, really a public confession. We know all have sinned. Would like to hear your thoughts. Well, I've heard some confessions like that too, Bill, where people come come at the invitation, they answer the invitation call, and they come and they say, uh, I have sinned. And I, since I'm the preacher and I'm usually the one who who talks to those people who come at that time, my temptation is to say, so have I. What else? <laughs> you know, because as, as Bill says, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I think the confession, if, the, if it's confession needs to identify to the people who need to know what you're talking about. Uh, you know, if, if, if there's a situation where several, and this came up recently here, a situation where several people knew of, of, of a sin that, had, that, that an individual had committed, but not, it wasn't terribly widely known, but several people knew. And so this person came forward, and the, and the confession as made was worded in such a fashion that the people who knew what was going on knew that's what we're, we were talking about. Other people who didn't know didn't need to know other than know that this person was dealing with some problems and needed their prayers for strength. Doing it that way left open the possibility that if someone else found out later on what had happened, they would say, oh, yeah, but I remember. That's what they. That's what that was about when that person went forward and that confession was made. So I think confessions need to be specific enough that the people who need to know know that that's what you're talking about. And and as Bill says, I think these confessions that simply say I have sinned are really pretty inadequate to the purpose that we're trying to accomplish with those confessions. All right, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. Thank you, Bill, for being out there tonight, and thank you for uh, your question. A little clarification on a previous question that we had, and so we're glad to, to add that clarification in. All right, uh, we have uh, plenty of time to take your questions via phone call or via email tonight, or if you want to just send it in the chat room, you can do that as well. But uh, we'd give top priority to you on the phones tonight. You can get in on the discussion immediately. You don't have to do any typing. Uh, give us a call, toll-free. We pay the bill, 877-381-4567. Uh, next questions come. Well, let's, let's uh, go, go to ahead. an email question okay. that just came in from our friend Randy up in Jackson, Missouri, writes in and said, would it be accept- what would be acceptable names for a local church? Can you give examples? Can a building have a name and the church simply be known as the church that meets at that building? For example, could a church that meets at the Holiday Inn be known as the church that meets at the Holiday Inn? Um, I would say yes. Uh, Throughout the New Testament, we've got the church at Corinth, the church at Thessalonica. Uh, so There's seven of them mentioned in Roman, Revelation 2 and 3 that right. are just the church at or yeah. the angel of the church at. Yeah, so... My answer would be, yeah, I think so. I think that I, I don't see anything wrong with that. I do think, though, that there's a trend, and, and we've seen some who almost want to disguise what's going on. You know, uh, they want to eliminate the name of the church. And there are several scriptural designations for the church in the New Testament, the Church of Christ, the Church of God, the Church of the Firstborn, and uh, so forth. But some people, I think, for some reason or another, feel timid about identifying what they what they really are, and so uh, you know they they use other designations that, and I don't want to be judging them, but it seems to me that they use other designations that are almost intended to hide who they what their real identity is and what they really believe and practice, and I don't see any reason for that. All right, and uh, there's certainly nothing to be ashamed of. It's almost like uh, the old bait and switch tactic, Dad, where we'll get people in the door. And then when when we get them in, then we can really tell them what to, 
what they what they yeah. bought into. And but as far that. as what Randy asked, I think it would be very appropriate to say this is the church that's meeting at the Holiday Inn. I, I'm seeing that that seems very scriptural to me. Okay, all right, eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. Questions at collegeview.com. One more break, and we go to the top of the hour. Still time for you to get in on the discussion. Don't go anywhere. We'll continue right after this. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. Tonight on Channel 8 WSIN, it's TV like you've never seen it before. Starting at 8, it's TV's funniest new comedy, Fornication in the City, and Marie has been misbehaving again. Guess what? I just cheated on my husband. He doesn't even know about it. (laughs) And then at 8.30, it's the show that's setting the standard. You won't want to miss this week's I Love This World, where Bob makes a great announcement. Well, I think it's time you knew the truth. I'm gay. (laughs) And at 9 o'clock, it's the show that Television Magazine has called the number one drama for murder and violence. You won't want to miss this week's In Cold Blood to see who will be the next to be gunned down. It all starts tonight at 8 o'clock on Channel 8 WSIN. I'm Greg Gwynn reminding you that sin is a terrible thing and that those who are entertained by watching others sin fall under the condemnation of God that is mentioned in Romans 128. Be careful what you watch on television because in spite of what the devil wants you to think, sin is always sin and it's never funny. This is Stephen Nicholson, a member of the College View Church of Christ, and I want to invite you to be a regular participant on the virtual Bible study. Your input by way of emails and phone calls are always welcome during the live program. We're also open to your suggestions about possible topics for discussion on upcoming editions of the program. We'd love to hear from you anytime. Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. Welcome back into the virtual Bible study. We appreciate you being on the program tonight, Dad. We mentioned at the beginning of the program that we had a small audience tonight. That number has grown throughout the program, so we're glad that you're here tonight. And we appreciate you listening to the program. If you're just joining us, we're talking about various listeners' questions on the program tonight. Any question is fair game, so if you have a question you'd like to hear discussed, you have about 15 minutes to get in on the discussion, so hurry up and join us on the program tonight. Uh, Randy writes back with a follow-up. I think kind of ties in with some of the things we've been talking about. He says, I often see or hear a request for prayer that is called a, quote, unspoken prayer request. Can we really pray effectively for an unknown situation with an unknown person? I, I don't know how you could do that. Do you, Jacob? I think it would be sort of quiet, wouldn't it? I mean, what, what do you say? We don't even know what that what it's about or who it's about, you know. And so, you know, if, if you're going to make a request that your brothers and sisters pray for you, it seems like you ought to identify yourself and identify your need to do otherwise. I, I, I don't know what you would say about that. How could you be effective? I, no, to, to answer the question, I don't believe it could be effective. I don't, and I don't think we ought to be willing to be open enough with our, our struggles and uh, things that are a challenge to us so that we can get the assistance that we need. Yeah, you know, if someone came, if if it was announced to the local church, we have we have a request from someone that we will not name, cannot name, concerning a situation that we cannot talk about. Uh, I think I, I think my reaction to that announcement would be, what's the use? Well, it'd be if you went to the do- a physical doctor, you know, you've got a problem. You walk in and they say, well, we need you to fill out this form. Well, I'm not going to give you my name. We need to know your medical history. I can't tell you that. Well, and you that was okay. Go ahead and talk to the doctor, and you go and get up on the examination table. He comes in, says, "What's your problem?" Well, I can't tell you. I'm just here, and need some help. Yeah. You you probably leave feeling about the same way you did when you walked in. I think they'd send you packing if you did yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I now that's a little bit new to me. I haven't exactly heard of a situation just like that, but uh, that Randy describes. But I I would agree with him that I don't see how you could effectively address that situation at all. All right. All right, and then we got an email from a listener in Indiana who says, you can thank God for the blessings you have received, but can you ask him to bless others with good things? Oh, I think so, yeah. yeah. We should pray for our enemies, and I think uh, that praying for our enemies is uh, asking for God's blessings on them. Yeah. Uh, I would add, for, that, that's a good point, I, I would add First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. I, Paul says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and givings of thanks be made for all men. For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, 
in the sight of God, our, our Savior. So supplications, prayers, and intercessions be made for all men. The, the idea of supplications is to ask for personal needs. Intercessions is to plead on behalf of someone else. So I think especially there in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, the word intercession would say, yes, we, we're, we're authorized and even instructed to pray for others and th- that they may receive the things they need. And we do that a lot, uh, for instance, with someone in their health uh, condition. We ask for God to bless them with better health. Uh, we're asking for things for others who may have a need and certainly uh, something that's scriptural and uh, something we should be practicing. I think exactly right. Uh, so inter- thanks, thanks for that question. I believe the answer is yes, we can pray for others, definitely for the things that they need. All right. Good uh, good question there. We're glad to have it uh, from Indiana tonight. Thank you for listening there. All right. Now, uh, we've got a little bit of time left. I want to go to a couple of posts that came to our account on YouTube. I don't know if all of our listeners are aware that we are out there on YouTube. We've got a few videos up on YouTube taken from the virtual Bible study setting. Uh, the old set, too. We probably need to update those. Yeah, uh, before we had our, our uh, current set that was built by our, our brother Gordon, uh, we, we, we put some videos out there on YouTube. We've had lots of hits. It's very interesting to me how you can get something out there, Jacob, and people will access it and listen to what you have to say. But we've got a, 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 one of our videos is on the question, do I have to be baptized? And uh, we, we got this response by comment, no name given. Looks like his name is Mark. Uh, maybe, yeah, uh, based on what his uh, account name is. Uh, it says, baptism is not necessary and should not be practiced. That's his conclusion. Okay. He says, let your doctrine be updated by the revelation the ascended Christ gave to the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul says there's one baptism. Romans 6, Paul makes it clear that the one baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which occurs the moment one accepts Christ. If you believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit and water baptisms, then you have two baptisms. You need to keep unit. You need to keep the unity by following Ephesians four. And then there was another comment added, which simply said, "This is from another, another viewer. Another viewer to the YouTube added the above post is correct. The above the post above is correct. Putting baptism in the gospel is adding works to salvation. That's what he said." Well, I got to tell you, I think both these folks are way off base, Jacob. Let's go to Romans chapter six. Uh, he says that uh, he well, first he it references Ephesians four, four and five, which says there's one baptism. We agree with that wholeheartedly. There is one baptism, but then he references Romans chapter six to say that that proves that the one baptism is spoken about in Ephesians chapter four is uh, the Holy Spirit baptism, and nowhere in Romans chapter six do we see that designation. Right. In fact, in Romans six, it seems clear to me that he's talking about water baptism. Because he says in Romans 6, verse 3, Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So I, I believe that Romans 6 talks about baptism in water, uh, not Holy Spirit baptism. It's something we submit to, uh, water baptism. Going back to Ephesians 4, it's certainly right that it talks about one baptism. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, there's one body and one spirit, even as you're called, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So by the time Paul wrote the the book of Ephesians, He says there was just one baptism. Now, it has to be acknowledged that there was a time when there was more than one baptism. For instance, in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, there was Holy Spirit baptism in evidence. The apostles were baptized with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as a manifestation of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And uh, after they preached the gospel on that day, 3,000 people were baptized in water for the remission of their sins. So there was a time in the in the very early days of Christianity when there were two baptisms underway. One was Holy Spirit baptism and the other was water. But by the time Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, which was 35, 38 years later, there was just one baptism. Now the question is, which baptism was it? Chapter 5, verse 26 defines that for us. Right. uh, Talking about Christ, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. The one baptism referenced in Ephesians chapter 4 is 
batter, water baptism, uh, not Holy Spirit baptism. Exactly right. Exactly right. So this the, the, this uh, comment to our YouTube video is just wrong and has mistaken the 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 idea of the one baptism in Ephesians four. Now let's go to the other viewer's objection because that's the primary objection yeah. that we hear about baptism that it is adding works to salvation. We know Ephesians chapter two tells us we're not saved by works uh, of our of our own merit uh, that we should boast. But is baptism then something that's condemned by Ephesians chapter two? Adding works to salvation. Uh, as you said, Jacob, probably most people who take that position would go to Ephesians 2, verse 8, where it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are not saved by works, but it mentions what kind of work he is talking about when he says we're not saved by work. He says we're not saved of works lest any man should boast. There's no kind of works that would save us, the kind of works by which we could boast and say, look what I have done. And so what Paul's saying there, there's no works of merit. You can't earn your salvation. It, there's nothing that you could do, baptism or anything else, whereby when you had finished it, you could say, Lord, you must now save me. I have earned my salvation. Look at all that I have done. There's no such works. Baptism or no, not baptism, not anything else would qualify as as a work that would earn our salvation. You know, these people who say that baptism is adding works to salvation would tell us that we have to very explicitly confess our faith in Christ Jesus. We have to also repent. And both of those are works. Both of those require action on my part. In fact, uh, repentance is certainly more working on my part than baptism is. Baptism is a very passive act on my part. Repentance requires a lot of effort. And, And confession. You know, you stop thinking about confession. To, to to actually form the words, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, to confess faith in Jesus. I have to actually expend calories in order to be able to do it. Not much, but some. There's some work involved in producing the sounds to verbally confess my faith in Jesus Christ. But nobody says that those are adding works to salvation. It's interesting that in John chapter 6 and verse 27... No, excuse me, John 6, 29. In John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him that he has sent. Jesus said that even faith is a work. Well, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You've got to hear it. You've got to take it in. You've got to contemplate it, accept it, believe it, follow through with what it tells you to do. But in John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus said that even faith is a work. And so there is work involved. And being saved. Faith is a work. As you said, repentance, confession are works. Baptism takes effort, takes some effort to be baptized. We're not denying that. There's no works of merit that would cause you to be saved, but there's things to do in order to be saved. They're works of obedience. They don't earn our salvation, but they're required in order to be pleasing to God. And we'd be amiss if we didn't cite James chapter 2, verse 24. There's probably some listeners who are shouting at their uh, computer monitor right now. Uh, in James chapter 2, verse 24, you see how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Uh, we must be obedient. Works of obedience are required in order to be pleasing to God. They always have been, and they always will be until he returns again. So we must be pleasing to God by being obedient to the instructions that we've been given. We're getting an email from Greg in McMinnville, Tennessee, who says... Uh uh, catching the program live tonight some nights too busy to watch more posts on youtube would be great and more convenient so maybe we need to do that to get, some, get with the program I maybe guess, we get, get some more things out there on youtube Thanks, Thanks, Greg. glad you have on the program greg all right well uh the hour went fast and uh, we had one more thing to discuss but we can hold that for the next uh round of listeners questions yeah it wasn't so much a question as an article that someone had forwarded to me and we'll, we may use that as a basis of a discussion in the future where some people are actually being honest yeah. with uh their way they handle the scriptures we'll talk about that on another program we should remind our listeners that anytime that you have a question uh, that you would like to discuss in this format we'd be glad to hear from you we can save it and we'll put it together maybe it's a question that merits a whole hour we could give you a whole hour yeah well, we're always open to that and as, as you see like we did tonight and we do this every once in a while we try we don't do it all the time usually we have a theme announced and we follow a specific theme for our discussion in, in each virtual bible study but occasionally we do something like we did tonight where we just Take a number of questions that have been compiled and 
go go through them during an hour. Well, last week we did the same thing, only we did it for a whole hour. A listener had suggested a topic, and we thought it was worthy for a whole hour's worth of discussion. So, exactly right. So we like to hear from you. We want to talk about things that our listeners are interested in hearing about, and so if you have any question that you'd like to have discussed, we'd love to hear from you. Dad, a good uh, discussion tonight. Lots of listeners, after all. We had a good, a good audience hey, tonight. I'm glad that uh, people joined us tonight. Thanks for being out there on the Virtual Bible Study. All right. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Jacob. And thank you for being there. We hope that you'll make plans to be back next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And in the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study his inspired word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.